dedicated to making the classics readable, relevant, and fun. Each episode, we'll discuss one classic book and share some recommendations for more contemporary reads that feature similar themes. As two nerdy bookworms, we appreciate the role of classic lit, but we won't get too academic about it. We'll talk about the books we love and the books we loathe, and help stock your TBR pile with old and new reads for every literary taste. Hey, Chelsea. Hi, Sarah. I am really glad that I ate a snack before we started talking about this book. (laughs) (laughs) What about you? (laughs) It is essential. I didn't eat a snack, and now I'm a little bit nervous about it. You're going to get hungry. (laughs) Yeah, I'm definitely going to get hungry. I am really excited to talk about this one with you because it's so different from any book we've read for the podcast so far. It is. It definitely stands out as being really different. And I love when we mix it up with a more modern classic. So it's always fun to talk about a more recent classic read. I agree. And today we are talking about Like Water for Chocolate by Laura Esquivel. And this one was published in 1989 in Mexico in the original Spanish version. And then I think it wasn't for another two or three years that it was published in English, but it was a bestseller in Mexico for many, many years. Yeah, I think it might have been like 1992 or something when it was translated and published by Doubleday, but it has sold over four and a half million copies around the world, which I think is just incredible. And it's been translated into many different languages. So we'll just start with a little summary for those of you who haven't read this one yet or haven't read it in a long time. Set against the Mexican Revolution from about 1910 to 1920, this story follows Tita, a dutiful daughter who is condemned to never marry and take care of her mother for her entire life. When her sweetheart marries her sister, Tita is forced to live in the same house, cooking their food and caring for their children. Tita is a magical cook, and her emotion pours into each dish she bakes, with mixed results. (laughs) Throughout the novel, Esquivel sprinkles in recipes as she tells a family's history. This novel was originally written in Spanish, as we mentioned, and we both read the English translation that was published in 1992. Yes, and it was perfect timing because August is actually Women in Translation Month. So August is when the literary world celebrates women authors and translators who bring stories to readers around the world. And it's a celebration, but also a time to recognize some gender disparities for works in translation, so it's really fun to highlight incredible books authored and translated by women. So if you are looking to celebrate Women in Translation Month for August, this is a great one to pick up. Chelsea, this I believe was your first time reading Like Water for Chocolate. What were your initial impressions? I liked it. So this was the first time that I read it, and I was really hooked right away by the recipes and the food descriptions, and then the family drama really sucked me in. So it was a pretty quick read for me. I think I read it over two days, and I really enjoyed it. And I love books that span 
a significant amount of time. So I loved the seasonal aspect to this book. I loved that it traced the family over many years. So I really liked it. Sarah, you have read this one before. This was a reread for you. Yeah, and I read it for the first time not very long ago at all. I had heard it mentioned on an episode of What Should I Read Next? And it was the episode, episode 146 with Chatty Brown. And I loved Chatty's episode so much. And actually, I have met and got to talk books in person with Chatty a couple of times since hearing her episode. She lives in Denver. Oh, that's right. She's in your area. Yeah. And I I loved all of her recommendations and the way she talked about like Water for Chocolate was really powerful and Chatty isn't from Mexico, but just how much she felt like she learned about the culture and got to immerse herself in the cultural elements of a new place by reading this book was something that she loved. And so I read it right after I got back from a trip to Mexico City a couple years ago. So it was it was kind of perfect. It was it was really lovely. And I, I'll definitely say like this book I I think it's delightful and I completely agree that the it's the immersion in the culture and the food and the magic that are my favorite parts of it and I'm pretty ambivalent about the romance part of it which surprised me just in terms of knowing myself as a reader but I think I have some ideas about why that is and so I'm excited to talk about that with you. That's, I'm eager to hear about that too, because that's really how I felt at the end after I turned the last page. I was like, okay, I really enjoyed that, but I didn't like all of it. Yeah. And yes, I totally loved the complete and total cultural immersion. I really enjoy magical realism or stories with magical elements. And so I really liked all of that, but I really disliked the romance. I could have done without the romance altogether. (laughs) Well, that is fascinating. So maybe we should jump into talking about the romance part, and then we'll move into talking about the things that we really adored about the book, like the magical realism and the food and the culture and, and the writing and all of that. Yes, that sounds good. Let's get the not, not favorite stuff out of the way. (laughs) So there is a romantic element to this book, but I wouldn't necessarily categorize it as a romance because the story does not follow one main couple throughout the course of the book. And it's not exactly the happy ending that you would expect in a romance either. So it is very romantic, though. It's also like incredibly sensual and sexy. Oh, yes. Very much so. so. <laughs> I, I've seen this book on like a couple of like suggested reading lists for like world literature classes and women in lit classes. And I don't think that at my school I could assign this book. It's like too sexy and sensual and steamy. But I definitely see why it's on those lists. Definitely. I think it would be a great one. I think it would be totally reasonable to use excerpts of this book in a high school classroom. 100%. But overall, like there are several really sexy scenes. So let's get to the romance though. The core of the book is that Tita 
her mother bans her from ever getting married because she's the youngest daughter and she needs to take care of her mother into her old age. And it's like a family tradition that that is what the youngest daughter's purpose is. And so Tita knows this her whole life that that's going to be her her fate. And it's very much a fairy tale curse. It feels a little bit like Cinderella, especially because although she loves cooking and she's amazing at it, she spends most of her life in the kitchen serving the rest of her family. Yeah. And she has a sweetheart named Pedro, but he asks for her hand in marriage and her mother says, no, but you could marry her sister. And he ultimately decides that that's a great idea because he can still be around Tita. (laughs) yeah and and it's okay so we we've talked about how we want to organize our discussion of this but (laughs) everything's interconnected so that decision that Pedro makes I think is really hard to understand and is one of the reasons that I'm not into the romance element but but I think when you take a step back and think about how the book is more like a fable or a fairy tale, I don't know, it just makes more sense. It's not really about his character's motivation and you deeply understand it. It's just like, that's another obstacle that Tita, our heroine, is going to have to face. Yeah, and I really, I didn't have much of a problem with that as the premise. Mm -hmm. Especially, like you said, thinking about it as more of a fable, which this book has that feel to it. But as the book went on, I just liked Pedro less and less and less as a person. Yeah. So it wasn't that initial decision that made me completely dislike him. But it was as the book went on, I just really didn't like him at all. I just didn't think he was a great guy. Yeah. But Tita remains very loyal to both her romantic love for Pedro. And there are lots of scenes with like this sexual tension between the two of them and kind of the simultaneously sometimes oblivious older sister or like older sister who's very gloating about the fact that she's the one who got to marry Pedro and at some point in the novel Pedro and Rosara have a child and Tita becomes like the surrogate mother for this child too and she gives so much to the child and she feels so maternal towards it that she even is able to nurse this baby even though she hasn't given birth herself and there's like this magical connection amongst the family members that's really just interesting and so unlike anything else I've read. The way that Laura Esquivel crafts tension in this novel is so stunning and that's my favorite part of many novels but especially romance novels is the sexual tension and the build-up and so I loved that aspect of this and I just thought she did such an amazing job of using food and cooking as the conduit for all of that it was almost like Tita sends Pedro secret messages through her cooking Sometimes on purpose because she wants him to feel something and sometimes inadvertently because she can't help but pour herself into the food. Yes, I love that so much too. The way she writes the cooking scenes and the eating scenes are, it's just so wonderfully crafted. And I love the point you bring up about how sometimes this is intentional and sometimes it's 
accidental because just whatever she was feeling while she was cooking was so powerful she couldn't help but imbue it into the food and also Pedro isn't the only one eating the food so (laughs) her food has unintended consequences on other people who are eating it as well and I think you know probably the biggest and most extreme example of that is the wedding Oh my goodness, yes. Toward the very end of the book, the wedding scene. I thought that was hilarious and such a fun ending to the story. Yes. Basically, everyone at this wedding eats the food and just gets really frisky and has to leave immediately (laughs) Uh (laughs) to sum it up without any spoilers. Yes. (laughs) Which is so great. I, Yeah, there's also something she cooks that makes her middle sister, like, just emboldened and run off with the the Mexican army and it's just there's just so many like fun little details about what happens when people eat Tita's cooking and just how much power literal power she has so this connection that she has with Pedro seems magical and it seems otherworldly like it's something that they just can't help but there's this other romance there's definitely a love triangle going on here well multiple love triangles I guess yeah (laughs) because there's another man that falls in love with Tita and she thinks that she might love him back and that is John and he's a doctor and I like him a lot better than I like Pedro (laughs) I like him too I I like him better too and I I this is one that I just don't feel like I fully have the cultural context and knowledge to completely unpack it yet. Mm -hmm. And so I'm not sure how I'm supposed to feel about John. He's American. He's an American doctor and he like saves Tita after her mother kind of banishes her to basically an asylum and he nurses her back to health and really values her and respects her and shows her those things more than anyone else in her life has and I I love that I just I wonder if I'm supposed to love that (laughs) I don't know it's true yeah but I I really love the way that he respects her and cares for her in a in just a truly respectful way But there is a little bit of a distance there. And the point of this book, I think, is to tell a really sensuous tale and to argue that without that spark, relationships aren't, I don't, not as as valuable, but that that's really important in a romantic relationship. It seems like that's argued throughout the book. Yeah, I I think that's right. I think that this is a a book that really celebrates passion and emotion as you know kind of what's at the heart and soul of being human but i and and i i love that and i especially love that as we've mentioned over and over in the cooking elements and her passion in the kitchen but I do, I like her relationship with John a lot. There just seems to be this kind of equality there. And mm-hmm. 
respect, like you said. And and so, I mean, I I can appreciate the like steaminess of her, the tension with Pedro too. And maybe, maybe there isn't necessarily a hierarchy that Laura Esquivel is trying to describe. Maybe she's just showing different types of love and maybe for different people a different type of love makes more sense to them I like that I like that reading of it so part of why I really like John over Pedro is John is very level-headed and he he really cares for Tita, but he's not trying to control her. Whereas with Pedro, there's sort of like this controlling element and he's super jealous and really fiery. And it, it certainly speaks to that underlying passion. Those are just qualities that sort of play into toxic masculinity for me. But like you said, there could be some cultural things that we're missing or, I mean, thinking of gender roles, not just at the time that it was written, but when it takes place, all of those things play a part in this novel. But certainly as modern readers <laughs> reading, we can have our own opinions about um, how that how that passion comes out. Absolutely. And I think one of the things that I love the most about John is how understanding he is of Tita's passion for Pedro and and it's like he he just seems so mature that he can live with that and and love her just the same even though she still has these feelings for somebody else and has been in love before and I I find that very mature and refreshing definitely yes and it makes it a true love triangle that there is this struggle throughout the novel and it's not it's not exactly a secret to anyone, but yeah, it makes for some really interesting tension. That's for sure. Yes. And and we're not going listeners to... Will, <laughs> yeah, listeners will have to read to figure out yes. the ending and who she ends up with. Yeah, we're not going to spoil that for you all. But it, it was definitely a fun journey. I just found myself really frustrated often with Tita and Pedro's relationship. But I, I mean, I think... I was supposed to be frustrated, but like you said, maybe we were also supposed to sort of have our hearts like empathize with them or sort of tug towards them. I don't really know. Yeah, I, I don't know either. I, I do know that I rooted for Tita the whole time. And mm-hmm. so whatever she was going to decide that made her happy, I I trusted her and she was just so, she's just a character who's so, who is so authentically herself. That even when I wouldn't make the same decisions she does or even have the same passions as she does, I can appreciate them. It's so true. I've I've really loved her. And how can you not feel for her when she has this horrible, terrible mother? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like you said, it very much is this Cinderella story. And a kind of weird twist on it because... She loves cooking so much and she loves being in the kitchen, which is another interesting choice. And I think as a reader, some of me like bucks up against that. Like I want Tita to 
to be able to get out of the kitchen, but she that's where she loves to be. And that's not only where she feels safe, but where she really feels like herself and her passion and her emotions can can come alive there. I love the kitchen scenes. I do. I love to cook. And so I really enjoyed reading the recipes. I didn't find any one in particular that I wanted to try myself because they're complicated. They're so complex. <laughs> yeah. I wonder if there is like a Somebody, somebody must, there must be a blog or a cookbook or something where somebody has like translated their recipes into simpler measurements, like and, and the measurements. And yeah. So you can actually follow them because it's, it's so much of the recipes is just like what she feels and what she intuits. So I think a lot of people, if they have like a great aunt or a grandmother who cooks that way, they might have a family recipe like that where there aren't all those measurements. Maybe you've made it a couple of times with that family member and that's just the way that it is. I am imagining, so I'm just thinking like, oh goodness, when I leave a food legacy, if I were to write down my recipes, that's what they would be like because I don't measure anything. I'm one of those oh, <laughs> like, that's intuition amazing. cooks. Yeah. <laughs> and it would frustrate <laughs> frustrate my great great grandchildren <laughs> but I I think that it is also partly cultural mm-hmm. that the recipes are based on that intuition and tasting and you don't I mean there are measurements in here but so much of the process is really involved like day-long cooking processes and yeah I I really really enjoyed it but I think that so much of those those recipes it was about Tita and her legacy and the family lineage and the the culture and history behind those recipes not just like this is what Tita's gonna make today yeah (laughs) yes and I love how each recipe it's not always obvious but the the recipe that she makes both both makes it into the plot of the chapter and kind of establishes a theme for the chapter like you know when she's making when she's working with chilies and a lot of spices there's going to be like a steamy spicy scene she makes a lot of moles and the quail and rose petal sauce is a very sexy eating scene that's the one that that's the one that makes her sister run off into the street naked, glowing with energy, and the general (laughs) picks her up. And yeah, any of the recipes where chili is mentioned, and like you said, those spicy scenes, there might be like an argument or something Mm -hmm. really passionate and fiery coming up. But they're also seasonal. Yes. And so it will say the month, and often there will be a little note about the seasonal ingredients, and I... I really enjoyed the way that these recipes were woven into everything. It's not like the recipe is just there at the beginning of the chapter. It's sprinkled in here and there throughout. So you get little tidbits of instructions. Yeah, I love that so much. It's so original and it's almost like a puzzle to figure out how it connects with the theme. I, When I first read this, I was surprised in terms of the structure of the book, because it's called a novel in monthly installments. And each chapter 
begins with a month and a recipe. And so I, my brain was just like, oh, so it's a year in the life. But as we mentioned in the summary, it's not. It spans many, many years into Tita's adulthood. and But it still kind of has that episodic nature and you get caught up on what has happened in between. And it's it's really clever. And I like when the structure of the book just enhances all of the characters and the themes and the setting. And this is definitely one where the, the structure is just as propulsive and driving of the book as the characters in the plot. Do you think that you would categorize this as a coming of age novel? Yeah, I think I would. I think more than I would categorize it as a romance. And I think it was my second read that helped me see that. I think, well, also when I first read this, I hadn't, I'm a very new romance reader, so I hadn't read many romances and was just like, oh, this is a romance and didn't quite know exactly what the requirements of a romance are. So now revisiting it with some more knowledge and just as you know, being able to pay attention to certain things on a second read. I think this is a a coming of age story and a fable like you, like you've said. Yeah. It's as you were talking about how you were rooting for and admiring Tita. I was just thinking about, I mean, it does start with her in childhood and we see her grow into a young woman pretty quickly but it spans most of her life and it really, we see her come into herself and sort of learn how to set boundaries with her family and how to embrace her sensuality and to go after what she wants. And it just feels very coming of age to me. And I, I love that about it. And I, I wonder, I did go into this thinking it would be a romance and that's probably why I didn't love that aspect of the novel but I wonder if I went into it thinking this is coming of age Mm. if I would have loved it all the more with that framing I mean I did really like it but thinking about it as a coming of age novel to begin with I think isn't is just a, a different take yeah I think I think that's right I mean I think that really the most important relationship in the book is between Tita and her mother and her fraught relationship with her the amount of control her mother has over her and watching Tita grow and be able to you know eventually kind of stand up to her mother so all of those elements seem more indicative of a coming of age story and even looking at the you know subtitle here It's a novel in monthly installments with recipes, romances, and home remedies. And I like that the romances is plural there. (laughs) It's not a single romance. It's multiple love stories that we're learning about. And not, not just Tita's even. There are other love stories and romances for some of our side characters as well. Yeah, I was just going to say we have a lot of side characters with romantic entanglements. And if, if I could pick to have a sequel, I would love to know what happened to Gertrudis and and her military man and how she winds up like in charge of the army. And I, 
I loved her, and I think her relationship with Tita was really sweet, but I want to know what happened to her all those years. I love her, too. I mean, at first, you just think maybe she's like the comic relief sister, and then she disappears Mm -hmm. for a while. She comes back and she's made this whole crazy and adventurous and powerful life for herself. And yeah, I also want to know what happened when she's off screen. (laughs) And so, of course, we get sort of a competitive and tense relationship with Tita and Rosara. But her relationship with her sisters is complex and is sprinkled throughout this book just as much as her relationship with her mother and so it's really a story about this matriarch and the women of the family because their father passed away when Tita was a baby and I don't know it's just it's a fascinating family story yeah it is it's a coming of age story it's a family saga it's got romance and sex and betrayal and passion it's really she does a lot in such a short quick read I'm wondering who you would recommend this book to like what sorts of readers should pick it up it reads very much like a telenovela so and I don't think Jane the Virgin is the only telenovela-inspired show on, uh, you know, um, English-American TV anymore. I think there are a few other ones. So anyone who loves those, like, soapy dramas and the high-passion, high-drama of a telenovela-like story, I think would really enjoy this. And then I think anyone who enjoys fables and fairy tales, reading this as a fairy tale works really well and with the magic and the the fable-like elements of you can take this as a real story or you can just read it as oh this is a story that we told about my great aunt Tita that was passed on from generation to generation and changed as it went I think anyone who enjoys those would really like it what about you I don't know if I have anything to add I I think that (laughs) you did it a great job. Yeah, I think, I, I guess the only other thing I would say is if you love food and cooking, mm-hmm. pick this book up because just reading about the ingredients and the recipes and the love Tita has for what she does in the, in the kitchen is, it's magical in and of itself in addition to the literal magic of her food in the book. As we were talking and I'm thinking about all of the... Mexican culture that I might have missed or that I'm misinterpreting. I'm wondering if the film version might be illuminating for some of that. I'm really curious to hear from listeners who maybe know more of the cultural background of the novel or who have seen the film or maybe even studied this in a Spanish literature class. I'm curious to know if there are any resources or recommendations out there for us. Yeah, please do let us know because this is definitely one that I'd like to keep thinking and learning about. All right, Chelsea. Well, before we get into our pairings, and I'm really curious to hear what you've got for us, let's talk a bit about which audiobooks we're listening to right now. 
yes, let's chat audiobooks. Our favorite thing to talk about aside from <laughs> aside from pairings. <laughs> like off mic, we talk about audiobooks all, all the time. The time. <laughs> so I am currently listening to a recommendation from you, Sarah, A Burning by Megha Majumdar. And this is an ideal audiobook situation because it's about five hours at my 1.5 speed and that's just like a solid listening time you can listen to that over the span of maybe two or three days and get a book done and feel really good about it but I'm really excited to listen to this one since you enjoyed it so much oh and I read that one on the page so I'm excited to hear what you think of the audiobook I loved that one I am listening to Beheld by Tara Shea Nesbitt which is a book about the Plymouth colony. It's historical fiction. I haven't read any historical fiction really set there. So it I'm enjoying it. I'm it's another one that's like six hours. I think we both must have needed something quick this yep. time around. <laughs> <laughs> well if you love audiobooks as much as we do, you should definitely check out our favorite audiobook source, Libro FM. Libro FM partners with independent bookstores, and your monthly subscription fee goes directly to the small businesses that you love. Right now, you can get two audiobooks for $14.99. That's two audiobooks for the price of one with the code NOVELPAIRINGS. Just enter code NOVELPAIRINGS or click on the Libro FM link in our show notes. All right, Sarah, I am really excited to talk about our pairings for this book because there are so many different ways that we could go since this is such a mix of genres. Yeah, I think when we first started planning this episode, we were like, oh, we're going to have so many romances to recommend. And we do have a few romances to recommend, but so many different elements of this book jumped out at us. And so our pairings are pretty varied, which is fun. Would you like to go first? Sure. Yeah. My first pairing is I Am Not Your Perfect Mexican Daughter by Erica L. Sanchez. Have you read this one? I haven't, but I had it on my classroom library shelf. So I had lots of students who read it, but I didn't get to read it myself. Yeah, it's on a lot of lists for books to bring into the classroom, whether to teach or to just have available for your students. So this is a young adult novel and it's about Julia. I think she's a high school sophomore when the book begins, and her life is completely transformed when her older sister, Olga, is killed in a tragic accident. And Olga was her parents' perfect Mexican daughter, as Julia describes it. She got good grades, she didn't date, and she didn't leave home for college. And Julia, who wanted a completely different life for herself, now feels both, of course, a lot of grief over losing her sister and also feels pressure to step into her sister's shoes and be the daughter who does everything right and takes care of her parents. So, of course, Olga kind of reminded me a bit of Tita and, and Julia having to maybe come come to that decision herself. So throughout the book, Julia reckons with the conflict between her desires and her parents' wishes like a lot of great YA, it does a great job of, of exploring that. But she also starts to discover that Olga might not have been as perfect as she suspected. So this is very much a coming-of-age story, just like, like Water for Chocolate, as we discussed. 
It also explores the idea of a daughter's responsibility to her family. And when I was flipping back through this one to remind myself of characters and plot, I discovered I, that I, which I had completely forgotten that Julia talks about like water for chocolate very early in the book. She's thinking about her sister and she says, Olga was the perfect daughter, cooked, cleaned, and never stayed out late. Sometimes I wondered if she'd live with my parents forever, like that sap Tita from like water for chocolate. Ugh, such a <laughs> terrible book. <laughs> I love that. And I can totally see where a teenager would hate like water for chocolate. Oh, totally. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, and so Julia's like hatred of Tita, I think, speaks a lot about what she wants for her own life. And interestingly, Julia's favorite book that she's read over and over is The Awakening by Kate Chopin. Oh. Yes. And so I think that says a lot about her character and her, her fear of being asked to like relinquish her individuality for her family. So I just, I really loved this book and highly recommend it to YA readers and to teachers. I know a lot of schools use this in, in the classroom. I've seen mostly positive reviews from Own Voices readers, but I definitely have seen some mixed reviews. So we'll be sure to link to both of those in our show notes for you. So that is I Am Not Your Perfect Mexican Daughter. That sounds really good. And your remark about Own Voices readers just... I mean, makes me feel like I should point out this is something that I have realized since reading Like Water for Chocolate and then trying to come up with pairings for this episode that Mexican literature is a big gap in my reading life. All of my pairings, I have some pairings from Spanish-speaking authors or Latinx authors from other countries or other ethnicities, but I don't have any Mexican pairings, and so I'm going to make sure that I read some more Mexican authors. I feel the same way. I know that's a huge gap in my reading, and it's definitely a gap, a major gap in the curriculum at the school where I teach, which is, I and I live in Colorado, and we have a big Mexican-American population at my school, and it's a it's a big flaw in, in our curriculum and something that I and the other teachers at my school are, are working hard to address. And it's and working hard, but it's not hard work. Like, so much of this literature is so enjoyable. I just need to make the time and space for it in my reading life. Yes. So we've spoken it. That always helps to speak your goals out loud, yes. especially, especially recording them. Yes. So hold us hold accountable. Hold us to it. <laughs> All right, Chelsea. Well, what is your first pairing? My first pairing is American Dreamer by Adriana Herrera. And I've referenced Herrera's Dreamer series on the podcast before, but I don't think I've made it a formal pairing. But her food descriptions are so good that I had to mention it with this episode. In the first of her Dreamer series, American Dreamer, Nesto Vasquez moves his Afro-Caribbean food truck from New York City to Ithaca, New York, so that he can be closer to his mom. And he's a workaholic. He misses the bustle of the city, but he's determined to be successful and not have any distractions. But then he meets a cute guy during the lunchtime rush, and this cute guy is a youth services librarian named Jude. 
So I love this combination of a chef who owns a food truck and youth services librarian because those are like normal people jobs, right? I love that. (laughs) I just really, I really like the way Herrera writes amazing food descriptions. I was wishing that I could eat at Nesto's food truck the entire book, but also her romances are super realistic. Like I said, those are like regular people jobs. The main couple goes through regular people problems with miscommunications and issues that feel legitimate. And I, her romances, I think, are almost low-key but deep. And that's kind of hard to explain, but in contrast with my other re- romance recommendation for the podcast, you'll see what I mean. <laughs> um, there are some trigger warnings I'll note, including racism and homophobia on the page and a side character dying of cancer. So these topics were all handled with the utmost care, but it's not a breezy romance read, so just take care going into it. I That sounds really good. You've made me want to read Adriana Herrera before. I didn't know, do all of her books take place in Ithaca or... No. um, So Nesto and his friends all grew up in New York City together. That's part of the inspiration for his food truck is he takes the cultures from each of his friends and puts it all into his recipes. So it's this cultural mix from him and his friends growing up together and their mothers all cooking for each other. And so... They still live in New York City, but he is up north, so it's not all in Ithaca. It's some other novels are in New York City, but I think they might make their way back up there in some other books in the series. Okay. I I lived right by Ithaca for for some of high school, so that is another reason I would want to pick that one up. Yeah, that would be extra fun for you because it does talk a little bit about the local area. And yeah, that would be interesting to hear your thoughts. Yeah. All right. Well, my second pairing is a romance as well. It is Recipe for Persuasion by Sonali Dev. And I know I mentioned what should I read next at the top of this episode. And Recipe for Persuasion is also on Ann Bogle's Summer Reading Guide. And that's how I first heard about it and decided to pick it up. So of course this one leans both into the romance element of like water for chocolate as as I mentioned and the food element. And it's a retelling of Persuasion by Jane Austen. So of course I loved that aspect of it. So the book is about Ashna who is a chef trying to save the restaurant her father built. And the restaurant had been incredibly successful But now it's kind of outdated and they don't have a huge patronage and Ashna knows she needs to give it a makeover and update the recipes, but the restaurant's so tied to her father that it's hard for her to make those changes. So in order to put the restaurant back on the map and to reinvigorate her creativity in the kitchen... Ashna reluctantly agrees to go on a show called Cooking with the Stars, which is, you could probably guess from the name, like Dancing with the Stars. It's basically, it's a TV show with one chef paired with one celebrity competing in a series of cook-offs and events. 
So Ashner decides to go on. Her her friends persuade her, and she gets paired with this handsome soccer star named Rico Silva, who happens to have been her first real love. And according to Ashna, he completely abandoned her. According to Rico, losing Ashna was the most devastating thing that ever happened to him. And of course, their chemistry in the kitchen and on the screen is explosive and makes Cooking with the Stars must-watch TV. So it's kind of obvious, I think, why this is a great pairing for Like Water for Chocolate. Lots of food, lots of romance, definitely much more a romance than Like Water for Chocolate. But there's also a lot in the book about Ashna's relationship with her mother and living up to your parents' expectations. And there's this second chance romance angle here too, which Like Water for Chocolate has. So I thought this one was really fun. I alternated between the audio and the paper version, and I highly recommend it. It's a great summer read. Oh, I'm really excited. I have that one from NetGalley on my Kindle, and I might need to read that sooner than later because you were smiling the whole time you were talking about it. (laughs) All right, Chelsea, what's your next pairing? This one is a little out there, but it's really fun. So my next pairing is The Virgin and the Rogue by Sophie Jordan. This is a historical romance. And this I swapped out at the last minute because as soon as I finished the wedding scene in Like Water for Chocolate, I knew that I had to recommend this book. So there are some significant scenes, like we mentioned, where Tita's cooking has an aphrodisiac effect on the other characters. And so I couldn't help but recommend a romance novel that completely revolves around a literal aphrodisiac love potion. So... (laughs) Charlotte, the main character, thinks of herself as the plain and boring middle sister, and she's fine with that. She has a plan to move back into her childhood home, marry her sweetheart, live a quiet life. One problem that she deals with often is she gets terrible PMS and menstrual cramps. So her younger sister, a budding young chemist, mixes her tinctures to ease her pain all the time, Charlotte's really used to taking whatever mixture from her sister in the hopes that it'll make her feel better. Well, it just so happens that the one time that they have a really hot, handsome guest at their house, the tincture ends up being an aphrodisiac and Charlotte is all over this guy. Um, This would normally be really tricky to write with good, clear consent because, of course, someone having an aphrodisiac there's a really weird power dynamic there but Sophie Jordan does it really well and Charlotte of course the next day is mortified but she also feels kind of free all of a sudden and of course what ensues is parsing out whether there are real feelings beneath the love potions effects this is a fun romance novel with a completely wild premise And aside from the aphrodisiac, the heroine also has a nice little self-discovery coming-of-age journey, kind of like Tita's. But mostly, I couldn't help but think of the aphrodisiac when I was reading (laughs) Like Water for Chocolate. (laughs) This one sounds so strange. (laughs) Yes. I love it. It's ridiculous. (laughs) I was really skeptical going into it, but it's... So Sophie Jordan is kind of celebrating old school romance 
and I can maybe parse that out a little bit um, for our listeners sometime, but old school romances have things like kidnappings and love potions and these really wild premises that are often kind of problematic, but Sophie Jordan is taking it with a modern lens and sort of making it fresh. So I really liked that aspect. Oh, so interesting. Well, I'm definitely curious about it. (laughs) What is your last pairing? Okay, so we haven't really discussed this, and I'm not sure it's allowed, but I hope this (laughs) is okay. It's our podcast. (laughs) We can do whatever we want. (laughs) So I am pairing Like Water for Chocolate, which is a modern classic, with another modern classic that's even a little bit older than Like Water for Chocolate, and that is The House of the Spirits by Isabel Allende. So I had a bunch of books I was thinking about pairing with Like Water for Chocolate, and I just, I couldn't stop connecting these two books in my mind, and so I'm just going for it, even though hopefully eventually we'll do The House of the Spirits as its own episode. So these books are very interconnected to me. They're both family sagas. They both feature women whose unique and magical gifts determine the trajectories of their lives in really interesting ways. And they both include really vibrant and enthralling magical realism elements. I know there are a lot of readers who hear magical realism and think like, no, that's just not my genre. But even if that's you, I would encourage you to pick up a book like like Water for Chocolate or The House of the Spirits and try it even so. The magical realism in these books feels very vital to the culture, so it just feels so authentic. But it's also a kind of mystical otherworldliness where you as a reader get to decide whether or not you believe in it. You just have to accept that the characters believe in it. And I I kind of like that sort of magical realism. So with The House of the Spirits, I think it's better to go in pretty blind and just let Allende take you on this ride. But for a bare bones description, this is a multi-generational family saga set during a time of political turmoil in Chile. It's meandering and expansive and Allende develops characters in a really beautiful way through a not quite linear narrative. So Most of the book happens chronologically, but then she'll mention what happens to a character way in the future to kind of keep you turning the pages and not quite reveal everything. It's really interesting writing, and and I loved that aspect of it. If you like big family books like Pachinko or Homegoing or, of course, like Water for Chocolate, you will probably really like this one. I will say that if you are a reader who needs to be able to love and root for all of the main characters to enjoy a book, this one probably won't work for you. There are a lot of characters to love and root for, but Esteban, who's one of the main protagonists, is very villainous. And there are some trigger warnings here for rape and abuse and... Allende handles it really, really well, but you have to be in Esteban's mind a lot, and some readers probably wouldn't like that. But I adored this book. I know I mentioned it on our spring season wrap-up as 
one of my absolute favorite reads. It's still one of my favorite books that I've read so far this year. I know we'll eventually do an episode on it, but until then, I am glad to have another reason to recommend it here. I'm really excited to read that one, and I'm really glad that this is another book by a woman in translation. Yes. There we go. For Women in Translation Month, yes. Exactly. All right. I can't wait for you to talk about your final pairing. Yes, this is another one of our co-signed pairings. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So this is one of my favorite books, With the Fire on High by Elizabeth Acevedo. And we have shared our love for Acevedo before on the podcast. We're super fans. I think she is, I think she's a literary genius and just such an incredible writer. So I think this is my favorite Acevedo novel, but that could just be because it's the first one I read and I listened to it on audio, which I highly recommend. It is prose, but I would say it's just as lyrical and incredibly written as her novels in verse. And this book features a teen mother protagonist who is, first of all, an amazing mom, and she's not a cautionary tale. And second, an incredible cook with big culinary dreams. And so Imani, the main character, just felt so real to me. And I love the way Acevedo describes her cooking, how her food makes others feel, and her passion. There's also a really sweet romance in this book, but in my opinion, the best part is her relationship with her daughter, which is the complete and total opposite of the mother-daughter relationship in Like Water for Chocolate. (laughs) Imani says, there's so much I want for her that sometimes I think the seams of my skin aren't enough to contain every hope I have. And I whisper it to her all the time. When I'm feeding her, when she's asleep in my arms, when we are playing at the park, I whisper all the things I know she can be and the ways I'll fight for her to be them. I want her to know her entire life, her mommy may not have had a powerful job or made millions but that her moms did everything so that she could be an accumulation of the best dreams. I love that so much. We it's love so good. <laughs> yeah, I um, I put this one on my Women in Lit classes summer reading list, so it's one of five books they can choose from, and this will that this is the first year I've done that, and I'm really excited to hear what they think. Oh, I'm definitely going to be curious to hear. I love it so much. It's just... her work like she is just an auto buy author for me I will get all of her books right away (laughs) yeah and how lucky are we that she seems to be like putting them out fairly quickly (laughs) yeah I know I finished clap when you land and I was like okay what's the next one (laughs) yeah I'm ready (laughs) all right well Chelsea before we wind down our discussion of like water for chocolate what is your pick of the week this week All right. I mentioned before that I love cooking and I'm not really a recipe follower. Um, (laughs) I I call recipes inspiration (laughs) because I always change something or substitute or like look at the recipe and then end up doing my own thing. But one place that I get a lot of my favorite recipes and where I've been doing a lot of cooking from this summer is The Defined Dish which is a blog, Instagram account. She also has a cookbook. And I have loved every single recipe of Alex's that I've cooked. She does a really fun feature where she asks a friend to pass the dish 
on her Instagram stories and share a cultural dish or a meaningful family meal. And so I know that food bloggers posts can be annoying when you just want the recipe, but I do like those cultural and family histories behind the food. So that is the defined dish. That's where I'm getting a lot of my cooking inspiration these days. Okay. I also went in a food direction for my pick of the week. Perfect. Which is Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat, both the show and the book by Samin Nasrat. And I'm not a big cook. We're like solidly a Blue Apron household (laughs) and aren't big experimenters. But I really loved exploring the book and the show because Samin is all about empowering you as a home cook to experiment with flavor and veer away from recipes and make those substitutions just like you were saying. And to make something that's perfect for your palate by finding out like what flavors you like and how to balance them for your meals. So the way she talks about food and cooking almost feels like magic and how to put your own spin on things. And that just felt very much appropriate for like water for chocolate. I really need to get my hands on this cookbook. I can't believe that I don't have it. (laughs) I know. I can't believe you don't either. But I will say I once visited friends and they made the buttermilk soaked chicken from that cookbook for dinner and it was amazing. I have not made that yet, but I'll bump it up our list. (laughs) It's not complicated at all. And that's what she said. She said these recipes are not complicated, but it just takes a long time because you soak the chicken for hours Mm -hmm. in the buttermilk, but... It was really, really good and well worth it. Yeah, so. yeah. The recipes are are simple, but she leaves you room to play, which is sounds like something you would really enjoy. Definitely, I'm really excited to pick that up. All right. Well, this was really fun to chat about books and food. I need to go make some dinner. Yeah, I'm hungry now. <laughs> So a great way for listeners to support the show is to share novel pairings in your Instagram stories or to let your friends know that you're listening via social media. And while you're there, you can follow us on Instagram at novelpairingspod for news and announcements and bonus book recommendations. And we would love to know whether you pick up any of the books that we mentioned today. So be sure to tell us what you think. And please tell your fellow bookworms about the Novel Pairings podcast by sending them a link or writing a review on Apple Podcasts. Next week, we'll be back with our fall season preview, and we cannot wait to reveal the books we'll be reading over the next couple of months for the podcast. Until then, we declare after all, there is no enjoyment like reading. How much sooner one tires of anything than of a book.